Hello and welcome to Podcast by Brodies. My name's David Lee and in this series we take an in-depth look at some common and not so common questions and scenarios Brodies lawyers have faced over the years. In this first part of the series we're joined by Advocacy by Brodies, the team of solicitor advocates within the firm who work at the front line of law across many disciplines from land to litigation and from public law to parliamentary affairs. In each episode, we talk to Brodie's experts and hear their insights and experiences of how they respond to that deceptively simple question, what do I do if? In this episode, we hear from partner and solicitor advocate Tony Jones and associate David Ford, who will address the question, what do I do if I need a court order urgently? So David, first of all, in simple terms, what is a court order? And in what circumstances might people need one? Um, thanks, David. Uh, generally, uh, a court order will be an order uh, either requiring you to do something um, or alternatively uh, requiring you not to do something. Uh, and it's something which, which must be obeyed. A willful failure to follow a court order is a contempt of court and can lead to various sanctions being imposed by the court. That's usually a fine, uh, but in extreme cases could also lead to imprisonment for the party who is failing to comply. So court orders are typically required whenever a party has a right that they wish to enforce. So that would be a positive court action, which is requiring something to be done, um, or to protect a right that they have. So that's a negative court order, uh, stopping somebody from doing something. So some good examples of that would be, for example, orders to pay money. Uh, you might see that in a breach of contract claim or in a personal injury action. It might be an order requiring you to perform an action, such as transferring title to a property, uh, to keep a business open in accordance with your lease, or to carry out repairs to a property. Uh, th- those are all examples of the, of the positive court order. A negative court order, a good example of that is your, your typical access dispute. Um, you might be ordered not to interfere with access being taken over uh, a road uh, by a court, and that would be something that you would have to comply with. Uh, these are all matters that tend to fall within the sphere of private law. Um, there's a whole host of orders that might be granted in the public law sphere, and that's typically in cases that are looking to challenge the decision-making process followed by various public bodies. And that's a, a topic in itself and, and not one that we'll touch on today. Okay, thank, thanks very much, David. And Tony, can you just take us through the normal process for obtaining a court order, please? Uh, of course, David. You'll probably think I'm biased, but the first thing I would suggest anybody does when they're seeking a court order is get a lawyer, uh, that, and preferably one that knows what they're doing, um, because you're going to have to ingather evidence um, to establish your case. Um, and that lawyer is going to have to guide you through the morass of procedure and consider the law as to what the basis of your case is going to be. Um, and somebody has to frame the document, often called a writ or a summons or a petition or a plain old application, that is presented to the court, and they have to know where to take it, how to get it to the court, what the court needs with it, um, the formal things that it needs to say, and how much you're going to have to pay um, to, to raise it. Um, and in some cases, um, some of the ones that David um, Ford has just 
touched on. There'll need to be a hearing. Um, that is, somebody will have to appear before a judge, either virtually online or in a physical courtroom, um, to move for an interim. That's a, a court order um, that, uh, granted in emergency circumstances, if you like, uh, and to explain to the judge why it should be granted, uh, what the legal basis is, and, and what your, your case is all about. Uh, and in some cases, such orders can be opposed. That means there's somebody on the other side saying it shouldn't be granted. Um, and therefore, you really do need someone who knows their stuff to guide you through that and argue your case. And then last but not least, um, once you have the court order, it has to be served or intimated to the party that um, it is pronounced against because it's not really going to stop them doing what you don't want them to do or get them to do what you want them to do uh, unless they've been told about it uh, and they've been told that the, the court has ordered them to do it or not do it. Uh, and often these cases, if they're extremely urgent, um, they have to be dealt with out of hours as well. So your legal team, the court, and the, the people who serve the, the court orders will need to be available out of hours. So coming back to the start, get a good lawyer. Okay, so let's assume, David, that you've done all that stuff. As Tony, you know, beautifully put at the start, you've got a lawyer and preferably one that knows what they're doing. Uh, you've got all that in place. When will a court consider granting an urgent order and what tests need to be met? So there are two principal tests that any court is going to require to be satisfied of and will expect to be addressed on in any application for urgent orders. Um, the first of this is the requirement that you have what's known as a prima facie case. And what this really means is showing the court um, that you've suffered a wrongful act at the hands of the defender or that you've been seriously threatened uh, with such an act and that there is a case to try on this issue. Uh, what the, the requirement that you demonstrate a prima facie case does is weed out sort of hypothetical applications or spurious applications. Uh, but it's generally not a hurdle that there's too much difficulty overcoming. Um, the second test that you have to satisfy the court of is that the balance of convenience favours the granting of the urgent immediate order. So the court will be looking for you to set out a cogent need for there to be immediate protection. Uh, one example I, I once heard in court um, was the judge was addressed and was told that if he didn't grant the interim order, the immediate order, then there was a possibility that all the lights in Fort William were going to go out. Um, so you can imagine in those circumstances that the judge recognising that he probably do, should do something quite quickly about this. Uh, as a general rule um, on the balance of convenience, judges tend to favour maintaining the status quo. So if access has been taken up and down a road for a, a long period of time, uh, it's likely that they're going to continue to allow that to happen whilst the, the rights and the wrongs of the matter are ultimately explored. Uh, but it must all, always be remembered that this is a, a highly discretionary test. So it will be for whichever judge you appear in front of ultimately to decide and one other thing that they'll they'll factor in is um, the aim of uh, ensuring that in the meantime the least damage um, as possible occurs uh, either way. And what they really try to avoid, if possible, is one of the parties suffering irreparable harm. Um, and if if one party can say, "I'm going to suffer a bit of harm, but it can be compensated in money." And if the other says, no, no, this will be this will be it for me, I'll be completely out of business, um, then the judge is probably going to come down in favour of the, 
the party who's able to convince the court that there's a res- real risk to its its livelihood and not just some some inconvenience. Okay, thanks, David. I think you've definitely given us an alternative title for the podcast there. The lights will go out in Fort William, I think would be a tremendous title for a podcast. And you could do any number of episodes on that, I'm sure. So thank you for that, Tony. Um, what information do you need to support your application for a court order? Um, well, the information is commonly referred to in the courts as evidence, um, uh, at least these days. And the evidence that you need is dictated by uh, the legal basis of your application uh, and the law that you're seeking to, to bring into play. So I'll try and illustrate that by reference to, to three fairly common examples. The first is um, your classic sort of neighbour dispute where perhaps one neighbour keeps driving across the other neighbour's ground uh, and there's a dispute about access. Now, well, the first thing you're going to have to do is establish that your neighbour has, in fact, been driving over your ground. And traditionally, one way of doing that is by means of a witness statement, is that you'll give a statement to the uh, solicitor saying that this has happened. Um, but perhaps in these modern times, a, a better way of, of establishing that is photographs or even video evidence of it actually happening. Um, and um, then, of course, the, the lawyer is going to need to consider that against the legal basis, uh, which is production perhaps of your, your title to your property to vouch that your neighbour doesn't have a legal basis upon which to be crossing your ground. So that's the, the first example. The next one uh, is a classic example of the noisy neighbour. Um, you've got a neighbour who uh, has uh, a propensity towards parties going on until two, three o'clock in the morning, uh, and you're you're fed up with this. Now, again, evidence is witness statements or perhaps sound recordings and video evidence of the the parties going on, showing that the time when they happened, etc. Uh, and the legal basis of your case is what's referred to at the common law as law of nuisance. So it's not a statute as such. It's just the common law well, would give you a, a, a right um, to, to, to raise an action. And the third and final example um, is you're an employer and you employed somebody. And um, as part of their job, they got uh, to know your clients quite well. Uh, and then they left your employment and then a few weeks later, one of your clients says that they were approached by your former employee who's saying, come to me, I'll deal with your your work. And um, the evidence that you need there is you need the evidence of the client who said that they were approached. Uh, and you also need um, to produce the contract of employment that you had, which hopefully has a restrictive covenant that says that the departing employee ought not to have approached your clients um, because you're going to bring the law of contract to bear uh, to try and stop that happening in the, the future. So those are the three examples. I hope, I hope that uh, helps demonstrate what sort of information uh, you would need for different types of cases. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Tony. And David, we're talking, as we touched on earlier on, about potentially quite fast moving uh, legal cases here. And how can you obtain advance warning, you know, if an urgent court, court order is on its way? 
thanks, David. That's a it's a very good question because what often happens with an urgent court court order is the party seeking it makes an application to the court and will be heard on that without anybody else having a chance to object or to make representations, and that just reflects the urgent nature of the order. However, what you can do if you're concerned that somebody might seek urgent orders against you is lodge what are known as caveats um, at typically the court of session, which covers the whole of Scotland and also whichever sheriff court is most local to you. Uh, So what the caveat is, it's a written intimation made by a solicitor to the relevant court requesting that the court gives advance notice. Um, to the solicitor if any application has been made against their client um, seeking an urgent or or interim order. So by having that caveat in place, um, the court will not grant any urgent immediate order against your client without that solicitor being given an opportunity to make representations on behalf of you. And that can be really, really important. Particularly, I was mentioned there that the balance of convenience. Um, there are always two sides to every story, and if you want a chance to to get your side uh, of the story across right at the very, very start, then a caveat really is essential. Um, the way this works in practice um, is that the application goes into the court. Uh, the court's clerks will will check their register of caveats to see if the the defender is listed, and if they are, there should be a, a telephone number. Um, for the solicitor, which can be phoned at any time of the day, day or night. It tends to be a 24-hour service. So there are uh, a couple at Brodie's who are the, the, the nominated 24-hour uh, contact contact points. Um, they get a phone call uh, and they're told, uh, orders have been, been sought. When are you available for a hearing? Uh, and at that point, you don't get to say, oh, can we have a couple of weeks? Um, if you're lucky, you'll get 48 hours. Normally, it's 24 hours. Sometimes it can be even less and just be half a day. Um, and what you then have to do as the solicitor is get in touch with your client, let them know what's happened and quickly um, get a briefing from your client and mobilise somebody, if it's in the court session with rights of audience, that would be an advocate or a solicitor advocate, to go along and appear at the hearing. So I guess Tony mentioned at the start, um, you really do need a, a good team of lawyers who know what they're doing if you want to get the full benefit of uh, advanced warning of a, an urgent court order. Okay, thanks very much, David. And simple question, Tony, why might the application for a court order be refused? Well, it's a simple question, but um, it's a complicated answer because, of course, there are many different types of case. uh, And um, in a few moments, I'll try and illustrate some examples by reference to the same three cases that uh, I used a few moments ago. but at its base, you're going to fail and have your application refused um, if the facts or the, the law that you base it on is insufficient. And at the interim stage, um, before there's been a hearing of all the evidence, um, uh, that's because prima facie, the case is too weak. Uh, or uh, it may be because the balance of convenience does not favour you. That's David Ford's lights out in Inverness point. Um, now, to, to give examples using the, the three that I mentioned before, uh, the first where the, the neighbour is driving over uh, your land. Um, say, for example, in the neighbour's title, it says that he's entitled to do that. He has a servitude right to do that. Um, then as a matter of law, you're going to fail um, because he's entitled to do so. Um, with a noisy neighbour, 
Um, if, for example, you didn't warn your neighbor, you didn't ask your neighbor, you didn't tell your neighbor that you were being disturbed by these noisy parties, uh, and the neighbor turns up at the hearing or their um, representative turns up at the hearing and says, if only you would told me I'm so sorry, um, this is the first I've known about it, uh, I'll, I'll immediately stop, then it may well be that the judge will say, well, <laughs> um, I'm not granting the order, because had you warned the individual, they would have ceased, and therefore there's no point in, in granting the, the order. Now, of course, if the neighbour then had a noisy party a week later, you could go back to court. Um, but it's an important point, because um, in some instances, you have to give your opposition a warning shot before you head straight off to, to court. And the final example is um, that of um, what's all, all called restrictive covenants. That's the one where it's an employee, uh, they've left your employment and they're off trying to um, solicit um, business. Now, that gets you into a very complicated area, um, which um, has something to do with public policy. Um, and... A good example is uh, some of the older cases, which, believe it or not, deal with milkmen. Um, not many, as I, I suppose, um, get milk delivered these days. But in the old days, the milkman would go around uh, and knock on the door and say, would you like some milk? Uh, and the householder would say yes, and then they'd sign them up, and every day they would be delivering milk, and uh, perhaps you get to know the milkman quite well. Uh, and there used to be competition between the dairies um, to employ the best milkman who was the best salesman. So if that milkman then moved employment, lo and behold, a week later in the employment of his new employer, he'd be knocking on uh, the same householder store saying, I will sell you the milk from this dairy and not the dairy you used to get it from. Uh, and the law would say it was quite reasonable um, to prevent perhaps even the employment of a milkman at all in that particular area in which the milkman had worked for a reasonable period of time. Um, but they wouldn't contemplate, uh, uh, the court wouldn't contemplate a court order that forbade um, the milkman from ever being a milkman ever again worldwide, uh, because that would be plainly unreasonable. So when drafting your, your restrictive covenant, you had to make sure that it was no wider than reasonably necessary. Uh, and the case reports are replete with cases where lawyers have continuously argued that the clause framed by somebody else was far wider than uh, necessary. Uh, and one of the classic examples um, is that of the case of uh, Thorsten Nordenfeldt. Um, Norden felt he was an arms manufacturer, sold his business to the Maxim Guns and Ammo uh, Company. Uh, and if Maxim sounds familiar, it's because of the Maxim gun um, used uh, uh, in the, the, the late um, 1900s and uh, into the First World War, uh, where uh, Mr. Nordenfeld was trying to sell guns um, and he was forbidden by his contract from selling guns worldwide for 25 years. Uh, and in that particular case, um, the House of Lords upheld uh, that ban on him uh, because his client list consisted of almost every head of state worldwide. Um, so it very much depends on the facts of the particular case, whether in the case of restrictive covenants, a covenant is too wide or too narrow. And again, my, my point, that's why you need a good lawyer to give you advice at the start of the case so you don't go off half-cocked. Okay, thanks, Tony. And uh, David, 
sometimes presumably this process can be a bit slow what if you're in a hurry what if you need an immediate court order what can you do and can that be challenged yeah so so what we've been talking about um by and large today are, are the tests for immediate court orders uh, the, the typical court process involves preparing your written case sending it to the court getting authority from the court to serve it then arranging for it to be served in the defender. The defender's then normally given a period of notice, which is typically at least 21 days. They then respond. There'll then be some procedural hearings and time for the written cases to be adjusted. Um, and eventually, uh, several months or, or even over a year down the line, you'll finally get to a substantive hearing, uh, be it a trial or a big legal debate, at which the judge will determine the party's rights. Um, and that's that's very good as a very thorough process to ensure that each side gets a chance to properly investigate and properly prepare and properly state their case. But it doesn't really work if you need immediate access. Imagine if you had a driveway to your house that you'd used every day uh, for 30 years. Uh, it would be enormously inconvenient if you couldn't. Uh, and then a neighbour came along and bricked it up claiming that they had a right to do so. Uh, clearly, a delay of, of several months in, in such circumstances is, is not going to be uh, very satisfactory. Um, so for that reason, you get what are known as interim orders, um, which basically just means immediate. So that means right at the very start of the case, so rather than waiting till the end of the case before you get the orders, right at the very start of the case, you say to the judge, I want an interim, I want a temporary order right now. Um, and if the judge agrees with you, um, that day you'll get a court order uh, issued and you're able to go and serve that and enforce it. Um, so, so that's the, the sort of the benefit of the immediate court order. In terms of challenging it, there are there are two main routes to take. Um, if you've lodged a caveat and you, you've been heard at the hearing, um, then you will probably want to appeal against the decision that's been made. You'll say the judge has got it wrong, um, that even though it's a discretionary decision, um, its discretion uh, has been exercised in such an unreasonable way that this cannot be allowed to stand. Um, or alternatively, um, you might seek um, what's known as recall. Uh, recall typically occurs either if you, you weren't it, at the first hearing because you didn't have a caveat. Uh, once it's served on you, you can then put in an application to ask the judge to recall his interim order, which basically that means he withdraws it and it ceases to have effect. Um, or you may be served with a, an immediate court order and accept, yeah, you know what, right now this is justified, but there might be something in the circumstances that changes, which means it's no longer appropriate. And if that happens, you can go back to the court and say, say to the judge, I think you should look at this again. Um, it's maybe time we reconsidered this. Um, so that's the that's the two main routes of challenge. It's either um, recall, which is if you haven't been heard or if circumstances have changed, um, or uh, appealing against a decision um, if you think the judge has just got it wrong. And Tony, another deceptively simple question for you. What are the risks of obtaining an immediate court order? Well, um, the risks um, are that you may not get it, of course, um, but you might get it. And as uh, David Ford has just um, referenced, uh, an order could be seek to have, uh, sort of have it recalled. Uh, the action may be defended. And if you were ultimately unsuccessful in that action, an order for 
costs, or as we call them in Scotland, expenses may be uh, made against you. So in addition to paying your own lawyers, you'd have to pay a proportion of the other side's uh, lawyers. But beyond that, even if you are successful, depending on how your case is managed and steered through the courts, uh, there may be a small or larger difference between what you might recover in the event that you are successful um, uh, from your opponent and what it has cost you um, to get the order that you wanted. But worse than both of those is that If you were to proceed to court and get a court order, perhaps restraining someone from doing business, for example, uh, and it were ultimately found that you had obtained that order wrongfully and perhaps maliciously, say you wanted to put your competitor out of business and you perhaps uh, uh, embroidered the evidence and made it look more impressive than it actually was or just made it up, which is not unknown to the courts, then you could face um, an action of damages um, for the damage sustained by the party who was subject to that court order. Um, so really, again, um, the secret in all of this is, uh, well, I suppose as we like to say at Advocacy by Brodies, it's never too early to call your solicitor advocate and get some good advice before you rush into court. Thank you very much, Tony Jones, uh, wrapping up this episode of Podcast by Brodies, uh, alternatively known as the lights will go out in Fort William or possibly Ernie, the fastest milkman in the West Highlands, brackets before the restrictive covenant was applied, close brackets. Um, in Podcast by Brodies, uh, some of the country's leading lawyers and special guests share their enlightened thinking about the big issues and developments having an impact on the legal sector and what those mean for organisations, businesses and individuals across the UK. Thanks very much to Tony Jones and David Ford for their insights today. If you'd like to hear more, please subscribe to Podcast by Brodies, which you can find on all your main podcast platforms. And of course, for more information and insights, please visit www.brodies.com. 